Today's episode is sponsored by Escape from Flat Earth from I Love Toast. Player, your away team needs you. Dressed in potentially fatal fashion, your red suits have beamed down to the flat planet. Drawing cards could reveal an event that creates part of a mission timeline, maybe a new action to use, or it could help you stumble upon a lethal attack that will take your crew unless you can teleport them out of harm's way. With your ship marooned on a strange, flat planet, the crew was sent out in search of vital resources, but found lethal dangers at every turn. And it begs the question, can anyone escape from Flat Earth? Check it out on Kickstarter on March 10th. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're getting systematic. Today, we're talking about gaming systems. What does it look like to create a game that's more than that? It's, it's a system that multiple games can be played with the same components, the same cards, some of the similar ideas. And we're talking to Bez Shariari from Stuff by Bez. Bez, welcome back to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on again, Gabe. Definitely. Really excited to talk to you. This is something you've been working on for a while, different you know, system games, you know, a, a game that's more than just one thing. It could be lots of different things, depending on what kind of game you're feeling like. And so I'm really just kind of interested to, to hear your thoughts and your design process for these kinds of games. But before we get into it, I think it's been a year and a half, two years, maybe yeah, it's been a while since you've been on the show. And so kind of Remind people who you are, get them up to speed with what you've been doing over the last two years. Well, I generally go by Bez. If you're based in the UK, you might have seen me at lots of conventions. I self-publish lots of stuff. I started off making In a Bind, which then got bought out as Yogi from by Jigamic. And I'm incredibly blessed. It's nearly in 20 languages now. And I just got another royalty check. And it's basically, I'm not a rich person by any means. But I'm able to do this full time and it's basically paying enough to pay for my rent this year, which is brilliant. Um, But I really want to continue making games and I'm in a weird situation where, yes, I want to make money from my games, but I don't absolutely have to. Like if I end up, you know, I have both the privilege of not having to have another job, but also the privilege of um, being like, you know what, if I make some not so great business decisions. If I spend a bit of money on whimsy, I'm just all about making some good games and getting them out to people. And so I made um, the L deck, which we're going to talk about, which is what I'm rebranding Wibble Plus Plus as, and which has been going on since 2015, basically, actually released in 2017. And I've done Kitty Cataclysm last year, which is all about cats, chaos, um, being mean to each other. And these days I'm starting to get more into pitching. Just went to Nuremberg for the first time. Loads of fun. But it's like obviously more of a trade show and meeting professional people than getting to actually play anything. Very cool. Well, congratulations on being able to go full time into the industry. And um, yeah, that's something a lot of people want to be able to do that very few are able to pull it off. And so that's awesome that that's working out. And I'm excited to kind of see what you got going on here in the future. And let's get into that. Let's talk about some of these things that you've been working on for a while. Let's get a good little definition of like, what is a gaming system? What does that mean exactly? So I wrote down a wee thing here, which is it's a single set of components for which a set of reasonably diverse games continue to be made. And I don't mean a set as in zero or more, the mathematical definition. I'm saying basically there's, it's not a gaming system like some people talk about Dominion, where it's a single set of rules, but you've got more expansions. That's not what I'm talking about at all. And then we've got something like 504, which, okay, Friedman Freeze is amazing and made all these different rule sets and that interconnect. And it's 504 different games or nine different unique games for the same components. And that's really interesting, but it's kind of meant to be a self-contained unit. But then you've got something like traditional playing cards, which I think are the biggest epitomization of what a game system is, which is, okay, here's a bunch of things. You can play loads of games with them, and people are probably going to continue making games for these things forever. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the 52-card 
deck is just one of the, the greatest inventions of all time uh, mm. as far as just the possibilities and, and what you can do with it uh, and from the gaming aspect. But I would say it's even, it should be somewhere in the top, I don't know, 100 or so of just greatest inventions, uh, just for how much joy it's brought people for, I don't know how many years. I don't, do you know when the deck of cards was like, when did that come out? Do you have an idea about like the history of it? I think it was about 500 years ago that it was wow. really put together as, okay, here's the 13 numbers and the four suits. But I think as recently as 200 years ago, they were still kind of formalizing, okay, exactly how many ranks should be in each suit. And of course, there's like a lot of local variations. I mean, in the West, in the English speaking world, we're most familiar with hearts, spades, clubs and diamonds. But then if you go into Italy, there's a different set in every region. I'm not even exaggerating. Yeah, that's awesome. And just think about how much joy it's brought to people over hmm. 500 years, 200 years. Uh, I remember so many moments of my younger life of just playing cards with friends and, and family members. And yeah, so I think gaming systems, it, it's not something we think about a lot, but it's just a very normal thing. Uh, the game hmm. Go, the Go set is also another one that's been around for a long time. Tell me about that one. So, I mean, the game of Go, it's not itself a gaming system. It's one game. But then what happens is that you've got this grid, you've got a bunch of stones, and you can play so many different things with a Go set. So if you look up on Board Game Geek, it says games that be can be played with a 9x9 grid. Now, of course, this is a subset of the traditional 19 by 19 And that, I actually put a little question mark beside this, because I'm thinking, is this a game system? Because there's a question of whether something needs intent to be a game system, or whether, hey... Here's a bunch of things that someone made a bunch of other things for. Does that become a game system? And it's kind of like a weird somewhere on the border because it's not like other people are looking at the go sets and thinking, okay, I'm going to make a really great game for this. You do have five in a row games. You've got um, variations on drafts. You've got so many abstract strategy games that you can play with a go set that are not go. But for the most part, it just happens that people make these games and then it just so happens that they could be played with a Go set. It's not that the Go set actually goes off and inspires them. So maybe to be a good game system, it has to be the components of the system itself that really inspires people. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to put it. Now let's let's go through some of these other uh, systems. You sent me an email with just a great list of these different systems. Tell me about kind of each one, one by one. Let's start off with the Looney Pyramids. So this is a classic from the same folk that brought you Flux, which so many people know, that crazy chaotic game. And Looney Pyramids started off as one game. They called it Ice House. And then it came out in 1990, and then they printed like 100 sets. And then it took them, I think, like five years before they realized, oh man, look at all these other games that people can play with it. And back then, there weren't many modern gaming systems. Like since then, people have made so much with different decks or playing cards and stuff. It's basically what Looney Pyramids are, is you've got a bunch of different colors, you've got three sizes, so you've got small, medium, large, and pyramids can literally fit into each other. And from that basic starting point, you've got so many games. Now, what their games do have, which puts it potentially slightly out with the territory of what I'm talking about, is that they often use a lot of additional components, but still they have the Looney Pyramids as a central theme, and I think it's really culminated in the Pyramid Arcade, which was, I don't know the date of that, but it was not too long ago on Kickstarter, about like five years ago, something like that. And Looney Pyramids, it was like, hey, hey, here's the best game you can play with this. Here's the additional cards that you need, the additional boards. And here's the Pyramids, which are our central feature. And it's such a unique component and it really sparks people's minds. And I think that's why it's ended up actually doing really well. And here we are, 30 years later, it seems to be a fixture rather than something that's long forgotten. Yeah. First of all, it's crazy to think that 1990 was 30 years ago. And mm. it, it just it's just weird <laughs> to think about that. But when but whenever you uh, mentioned, when you sent the message, like, hey, let's, let's talk about game systems. This was one of the first things I thought about. It's like the Looney Pyramids. It's just been mm. around for so long. And there's so many different games you can play with that system. But let's talk about some of these other ones that are maybe a little bit less known, or at least I didn't know of them as well. Uh, let's talk about Peace Pack. Tell me about that one. So Peace Pack, um, the best version of this is probably the one that was curated by Eric W. Martin, who's best known for Board Game Geek News. And Peace Pack is meant to be kind of a game system for 
generic board games. And they came up with... So I've not actually got a copy of this, or Stonehenge, which we'll talk about in a minute, but there's little bits, there's kind of, okay, if you needed to make a game system, what pieces would you want? You'd want, okay, a bunch of cubes, you want some tokens, here you are. And it kind of came, and people have still been reviewing it. I looked up the comments, and there's still comments from January 2020, so clearly people are still playing it. But to me, this is kind of one of the ones that it it's kind of gone down a bit. Um, then Stonehenge, it's a completely different idea. Stonehenge was someone coming up with a bunch of pieces in 2007 and saying, hey, here's some amazing designers, Richard Garfield, like James Ernst, these brilliant people. Would you make a game for this? And then they made five games, one per designer. But then the thing is that I've, like, it's not necessarily the designer's best work because when you're, you could argue, ramshackled by that, when you're working on commission rather than because it's a labor of love, when you're working because someone said, hey, please make a game for my thing, it's not necessarily going to be your best work. It's probably not. I mean, of course, Richard Garfield's going to make better work when they're working on their own, given, and then they actually come to someone else to say, hey, could you make Keyforge? But when they're asked to make Stonehenge, they're going to make still a good game, but it's not their best work. And I think that's why Stonehenge has also kind of fallen down the wayside and there was nothing to really curate the games coming out from other people. Whereas going back to Looney Pyramids, what Angus and Kirsten Looney did was to kind of run some competition, especially in the early years when it was still getting off, because that's, you talked about curation, that's something you absolutely need to do with these game systems, because it's about encouraging other people. If it's only one person making the games, that's not it. Making a game system is almost like having an entire publishing company. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into community engagement and kind of how you do this in a minute, because this is some things I think that you have some very interesting insight on. But let's keep talking through examples. Tell me about the green box of games. So this was one that came out fairly recently, four years ago. And um, this is by someone in the Nordic countries, I want to say. Um, I've forgotten the name of the person behind it all. But one thing that they did that was amazing that I want to give a shout out to. On the Kickstarter when they first launched, and this, so what is the green box of games? It's kind of like an updated piece pack. I don't know how much the designer knew about Peace Pack. I'm sure they did, but it's kind of like, okay, here's another game system for board games. Here are some tiles. Here are some pieces. Here are some cubes. And you can go off and do a whole bunch of things. And straight off in the first version of the game, they gave you 10 games in the rulebook. And along with that, they gave you 10 more games that the community had made. Because on the Kickstarter, they said, hey, if you're a designer and you're willing to send me any game idea or you're willing to put one on BGG, pledge for this level and you will get basically a bunch of extra stuff. You'll get um, these cards that are meant to be for inspiration, kind of saying, hey, here's a one of those that give you random prompts to make games with, which is really cool. And they said, oh, we'll also give you two copies of the game for marginally more than the cost of one copy which is a really good deal. And of course, by doing that, they massively inspired people to chip in ideas and chip in um, fully fledged games. And they've done so much work with having um, a Facebook group, having people who are really committed into it and having people having all sorts of competitions, themed competitions as well. And it's done fairly well and i think it's notable for its ability especially what it did back into kickstarter very cool all right let's switch gears just a little bit let's talk about your game let's talk about the l deck tell me about it kind of how it came to be how it works that kind of thing okay so my game uh, my game system originally called wibble plus plus so it was back in 2015 i was working on in a bind this was my first game i was doing the art and I wa- I needed some escape because I don't know about you, Gabe, but if I'm working on just one thing, 
I start to go a little stir crazy. I mean, do you get that? Do you need to kind oh, yeah. of... Oh, yeah. I have to work on at least three at a time to keep my brain from not just uh, getting super restless. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a temptation in me sometimes when I've not done a thing to be like, oh, I can't do anything else until I get this one thing done. But if you just follow that, then you just end up feeling really guilty. And so I tried to escape that. I was like, okay, that's not the way to go. Yes, I'm behind with this artwork that I want to do for In a Bind, but I'm going to, inspired by Matthew Dunstan, a UK designer, do one game of that idea a day. And I managed to do this for nearly 100 days, back at around the start of 2015. And one of the early games, I think it was like the fifth one or something I came up with, was Wibble. Now, Wibble was very much inspired by Prolix, which has been redone by as Wordsy by Gil Hove. I don't know if you know that game. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. I played that one with Gil uh, a while back, and it's definitely one of my favorite word games, for sure. Well, I mean, I think that Gil Hove is just such a brilliant designer, and one of the things that makes Prolix for me, well, there's two things. One is the speed aspect. I really love speed games. Secondly, the fact that you can use any additional letters you want. Instead of being hamstrung by, okay, Scrabble, you can only use these letters. It's, okay, here's a bunch of letters. You get points for however many you can use, but you can use whichever other letters you want. So the letters are kind of things to strive for rather than you're being limited by, okay, these are the only things you have. And I tried, while cycling around on my way back home very late one night, in my mind thinking, okay, what's the absolute simplest version of this game I could do? And then I thought, okay, well, what if you just had to use every single word, letter, and it was just a first person to shout something, they get it. Well, that seems like a reasonable challenge, but okay, you're going to need to make it a little bit harder so the same person doesn't keep winning. Well, what if they take that card? What if each letter's on a card? And um, it gets harder for them. And what if the first person to five cards wins? Wait, well... I mean, if it you get need to get up to five cards, maybe one letter per card isn't enough. Maybe you want a choice. And so that's how I got to two letters on each card. It was just on that cycle ride. And then I went and played it a few weeks later. And I think this is quite unusual for game design, but the first version was quite good, but it wasn't complicated enough. So it was too short and it took about um, three minutes to play. And everyone was like, yeah, this is good, but we want it to be longer. So basically for the final version, I made it last multiple rounds where people are gathering more and more obligations. And so the important thing here is that over the next couple of months, a bunch of my game ideas that I was coming up with, I realized, hey, wait a minute, that could work with the same deck. And then I went to UK Games Expo 2015 and I had three games for the deck, Wibble, Fable, which is a storytelling one, and something else I can't remember. And then Andrew Dennison came up with a game called Alphabetical, which is about tactical drafting. And then me seeing this game idea from someone else, who was, which was totally unlike anything that I would have come up with, made me realize, wow, these cards, by virtue of having two letters on them, there is actually quite a bit of potential here. Because, um, yeah, having that extra option, having two letters on the cards, not just one, means that if you are playing a drafting game, more people want that card. It's like, okay, it could go here in your line or it could go here in your line. More people are wanting it. If it's um, a party game, it offers you more opportunities. If it's a matching game, it means you can match more things. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to make it a game system, not just one game, because I could have gone either way. And then I added the borders for a matching game, which was called Grabble, and I added the numbers, which at the time, the numbers were basically telling you the frequency of the lower letter. So the top letter, there are six of each. The bottom letter, there might be one, two, three, or five, depending on how difficult it is. And for example, one Z and five H's. And so at the time, I had no idea what the number was going to be used for. And I was like, well, probably someone will come up with a use for it at some point, or I'll come up with a use. But just having that in there... And I'll be making up games for this for a long time because my commitment is basically to make a game, a new core game, as I call them, every 1st of August. So like right now, there's probably about 60, 70 games for the deck that I've playtested. 
And I'd say about 20, 30 of them are actually something I would call good. But I've got what I call um, eight core games, which are like kind of me saying, okay, here's the best game, like the game of the year. And I release one a year, which is kind of at a judicious rate, just so that I have the opportunity to really play test it thoroughly and even um, blind test the rules because I don't want it to be like, oh, the only point of buying this game is to have loads and loads of games because that's not enough of a reason. You want to have loads of games, but you also want to have the games actually be something worth making and playing. Yeah, for sure. Okay, a lot of stuff going on right there. I want to unpack some more of it in just a minute, but first I want to back up just a second. Tell me about the Game a Day challenge that you basically came up with different game ideas for 100 days in a row. Tell me a little bit more about that and like what other, you know, especially new designers, like what can they be doing to kind of help them along in their design process as far as this little challenge? I mean, this was something you do whatever works for you. So Matthew Dunstan started it and then they were like, okay, taking some off days. And I know Emma Larkins has something where it's like game design every day. And if doing something every day isn't working for you, or if you want to do it like uh, free a week or whatever, then do that. But basic, And for me, it wasn't even like I actually did it necessarily every day. I had a blog post going on BGG every day. So like it might have been I took a day off, but I would only be able to do that if I did two the previous day and lined them up on BGG. And so most of them, what I would say is they weren't full prototypes. They weren't um, full initial designs. They were kind of at the stage where the next stage, the next step would be physically making the prototype. So there was enough information in there, at least for me, to think, okay, this is the idea. Is it a good idea? Is it not a good idea? Either way, the only way I could find out more about this is to either make up this big glass structure in which people are putting in their hands and feeling for objects, which was one of the ideas I had, or to actually make this deck of cards and this board. I mean, some of them I actually went and prototyped, but not everything was worth it. And I think that just doing something every day Doing something and giving yourself that freedom to be a little bit rubbish, giving yourself a freedom to be, say, hey, I'm just doing things and trying to get them out there. And if maybe one in 10 is going to be worth pursuing, maybe one in 100 is going to be worth pursuing, but that's still something that's really valuable. And, you know, I had a couple of days maybe one a week or one every couple of weeks where instead of just one idea was like, okay, I'm going to take a different stance. And today I'm going to just brainstorm. And it was like just about 50 lines. And I don't know who actually read all of that. And I actually had someone saying to me, hey, if you're doing this for other people, this is just too much for me to read. Like reading 50 ideas in one post, that's just way too much. But for me, it was very much here is something that's forcing me to work. And just getting it out there, because once it's public, that's a commitment. And even if you get one like, that's like one person who's, um, you know, actually paying attention to you. And in this digital age, it's really easy to think, oh, I'm only getting 10 likes, or I'm only getting one like. But like, even having one or two people following you is a really amazing thing, because you are impacting someone else's life. And we can so easily understate the value of that in this digital age where numbers are just ridiculous. Yeah. And I love the idea of doing this just to get ideas flowing, right? Mm. Just to get things coming out of your brain. And cause who knows, you might come up with something on day three and then day 47 comes around and you have another idea and then it really goes well with the idea from day three. And, and it's just a cool thing. It's like, if you want to be a writer, you need to write every day and you might only write a little bit and it might be trash and you might just throw the whole thing away, but it's, you want to get out, all the bad shots, so to speak. I've, I've heard basketball play, players that talk about this. They want to come out in warm-ups and shoot a bunch because they want to get all the bad shots mm. out of their system. That way, when the game comes in, you know, then all the good shots are, are still in there. And it kind of ties back to something that, because I studied graphic design originally, and I have really mm. strong memories of one time of sitting down and them um, saying, okay, what you're going to do is spend 20 minutes coming up with 20 ideas for a logo for this fictional company. And the point is that in that space of time, you don't have time to worry about, okay, is this good? Is this bad? It's just about getting those ideas out there. Like things like um, make, shaping the words to make a picture. That's something that everyone ends up doing. 
and it's probably not going to be where you end up, but just getting this stuff out to your system and then getting a bunch of things, because only once you've actually had that original idea and taken a step back, then you've got to also look back at it and say, okay, which ones of these were any good and which ones of these are worth pursuing? Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's uh, let's keep talking about pursuing things, but let's kind of switch back over to the game system. But why hmm. in the world would you want to create a game system? Why would anybody make a game system as opposed to just making one game and then making another game? Why, why would you do a system instead? I mean, I kind of think it goes to why would you make a game, surely? I mean, there's so many reasons. There's um, intellectual curiosity. I mean, people say don't make games for money, but maybe you want to make money. I mean, honestly, as like my first game, I'm very blessed. But okay, people who are listening to this are likely already making their own games. They're likely already working on stuff. And so I guess the question is, should you, instead of making a game, why would you want to make a game system, as you say, as opposed to the game? And I think there is a new level of intellectual curiosity. It's like kind of a Rubik's Cube. It's like, how many things can I get out of this one set of components? And then you've got to wiggle them all because as soon as you change one thing, it changes everything else. It's an opportunity to... One thing I will say is that putting together some notes for this, I realize I'm being incredibly negative, but it is a lot harder. And whether you're doing it for... Um, people to play because of the emotional satisfaction of bringing enjoyment to other people or whether you're doing it for the sake of um, having something that makes you some money or whether you're doing it for the sake of bringing your friends some enjoyment. I think that making a game system is more difficult, but maybe that's a reason to do it. Maybe it's just like um, what happens with me is I made Wibble and then I was like, hey, these cards that have two letters on the, them are really good for a whole bunch of other games. This works well for a whole bunch of other games. And that flexibility, having two cards, two letters, not just one, means that you can do all sorts of other things. And that intellectual curiosity of, oh, what else could I do? Oh, what else is possible? That is kind of why I did it. And so why anyone else would do it? I, I mean, I don't want to be negative. I think the disadvantages are going to come later, but I can't think of much else other than the sheer wanting the challenge, frankly. I don't think it's worth it as just getting out something out there because there's so many games. And if we need, let's say, so I think I wrote down somewhere, so there's currently 114,000 games on BoardGameGeek and about... 232 game systems and i would argue that um that reflects that in your library i mean i have maybe um i've got a big collection i've got about 300 games i've got about three game systems and i don't even need that many maybe five i don't know um i'm probably forgetting quite a few but you don't need that many game systems sorry for being so negative gabe no, I don't think you're being overly negative, at least not yet. Maybe when we get to the disadvantages, some of that will come come up. But I think another thing to think about is a lot of times, I have a feeling, a lot of times these game systems came out of, first of all, someone just designed a game, and mm-hmm. then they realized, kind of like you did, they, re- they realized, oh, this could be another game. Or if I added this little component or this token or these extra numbers on the cards, whatever, it could be lots of different games. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if it doesn't, you know, a designer doesn't go in thinking, I'm going to create a game system so much as they think, I'm going to create a game, and then it just lends itself to becoming a system. Is that kind of what what you found? Well, it's certainly what happened to me. And I would almost argue that if you go in thinking, okay, I'm going to make a game system, yeah, you might be able to do it in the same way that if someone goes in thinking, okay, I really want to make a game that sells 100,000 units, they're probably, you know, marginally more likely to do it because... um, I don't know, at least then you know not, not what to do because you're probably going to make something more mass market rather than something hobbyist. But like with a game system, if you go in thinking, okay, I'm going to make a game system, is that going to lend itself to a good game system? I don't know, maybe it is because you've got to have some unique thing. Something in there has to spark your curiosity and your whimsy and your you know intellectual 
desire to play around with it, whether it's the pyramids with loony pyramids, whether it's the um, you know basic nature of the four-suited cards deck, or whether it's the fact that's okay, we've got two letters on each card with the L deck. I mean, if someone can think of some sets of components, I think maybe a game system, fundamentally, it is all about those components. And maybe the components have to offer something unique to be a good game system. Yeah, that's a really good good question because you, you notice a lot of these systems have unique components. I mean, the, the Go components, the Looney Lab uh, pyramids that it is very interesting it's not just something that somebody would have in their their drawer or they, they could pull mm-hmm. from another game and so that, that's another interesting uh, thing to think about what are what are some of the advantages though of doing a gaming system what are some things that you found have been actually for the better in making your own game system well i mean there's advantages for me but there's also advantages for people who are playing it so i guess the advantages for me as a designer are basically in playtesting i don't need to spend time prototyping frankly because if i come to playtest if i'm like hey i'm running a design contest and i've got 17 entries i don't need to print anything i don't need to get anything it's just okay here's the deck away i go and it's really easy to playtest so as a designer that's the advantage as a designer the other advantage is that i feel like i'm specializing more because okay in game design most people try to be um, generalists, I would say. Of course, you've got the crazy amazing people who've got um, party games and really in-depth like two-hour, three-hour epic games. But for the most part, people do specialize little bits into, say, party games or lighter games. And then making games for a game system is even like a further specialization. It's like what Reiner Knizia did with all the auctions or someone else, or Picasso going through a blue period where you're exploring one constant thing for ages and saying, okay, what can I get out of this set of materials? And with the same point, as a designer, it's like you become hyper-specialized and it's, yes, whatever game you make is going to offer you improvements on all your future game designs, but making something that's even more similar is going to just have even more effect. And yeah, that's the advantages for the designer before we even get to the advantages for the consumer. Can you think of any other designer advantages? Yeah, so I guess it is in some certain ways easier to market in some ways. It's also going to be more challenging. We'll talk about that in disadvantages, but it's a little bit easier because you know, people know they. Mm. It's not something you have to to show people a new uh, theme or a new. Hey, we're, we're building this brand new world, and it's got all this. And this time it's going to be in space. And you know, last time we did a fantasy thing. It's like, no, this is this is kind of what I do. And so you can specialize. And people, one thing I think it's cool with what you're doing is everybody. You know, your customers, your fans, they know in August I'm going to see a new new game, right? And so it kind of makes it easier uh, for people to know what to expect and things like that. I think that's another. Uh, thing to think about just from the business yeah. and the publishing side is, is that. But yeah, let's get into what, what can consumers um, gain from this? One thing you said really made me realize that okay. I do get a benefit with playtesting because not just my own local going over to a place and playtesting it with other designers or bringing my own deck and playtesting it, but I can say to other people, hey, would you be willing to playtest this game? And other people are going to have the deck themselves. And so for, for example, competition, I said, okay, here's a thing. Can you play test it? And for the categorical rule sheet, I sent it off to a bunch of people who didn't have to print off anything other than the rules. And here's a brand new game. And so before it actually went onto BGG as being what I called the final edition, it's been proofread and blind tested and remote tested by a whole bunch of people. That would be a little bit more difficult if they actually had to print out a deck. Because I know I have the advantage of being somewhat established, but I'm still no, you know, not super established. Yeah, and I think something else just came to my mind is once you've done this for a while, I feel like as a designer, you get super kind of locked in to how these games play, how they work. Like hmm. you, you get so much involved into 
kind of the workings of it. Unlike other games, like if I'm coming up with brand new games, brand new ideas and themes and mechanics and all these different things, okay, I've got to like reset my brain every every design yeah. and try to figure out, okay, how does this work? But if I'm working inside of a system, it's like, okay, I know how it works. And I understand like the deeper nuances of it uh, in a level that I, I won't unless I you know work in a game for a long, long time. And so I think that's another interesting thing is you get to kind of live in this same design space for a while and then just come up with new ways of looking at it, different angles, different perspectives. Is that something you found to be true with, with the different games you've come up with? You're like, okay, I know how this game works. What, what if we did it this totally different you know, way? What, what if we just, instead of worrying about the letters, we use the numbers and then the letters do this instead. Have you found that kind of make it a little bit more interesting or easier oh, for yeah, your design absolutely. process? Absolutely. And um, with, I mean, if you compare it to a game where you try a bunch of things and then sometimes during the design or development of a game, it's like, okay, here's two forge two different paths that we could go i mean the way that kitty cataclysm my most recent game actually started was the same origin as in a bind because the very first prototype was like a chaotic card game and then had one physical card in it and someone was like hey you've got this kind of chaotic card game with moving around cards but there's this one physical card i mean if you want to make a physical card game go ahead and just do it and so them giving me permission, I went off and I made it super physical. And that's how Yogi came about, as it's now known. But um, then like several years later, I was like, okay, what if I went back and did the other avenue? And then I made Kitty Cataclysm. And that had to be two different decks. That's like completely different cards. But then going back to um, sometimes you are making games. And if it's for a game system, then you might be at some point thinking, okay, these are two different avenues that I can do. And maybe you do just do both of them. Maybe both of them actually become individual games because they're that different. And yeah, absolutely. I find that I'm specializing. I find that I'm picking up knowledge. I'm learning how different scoring systems could come about. I'm learning, oh, that scoring system went well in that game. And it's not a case of, oh, it worked well in that game, but that's only because it's a word game. If I'm making like 10 different word games, then... I can use a lot of cross-transferable skills or even more cross-transferable. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's switch gears. What do What's the advantage for consumers or buyers of these games? Like, what, do, what do they gain? So, I mean, I think there's three big advantages. I think it's price, shelf space, and ecological impact. And hopefully that, I know that's an indirect benefit, but hopefully people we are getting to the point where people have to care about that. So, and firstly, the price. Um, so obviously buying one deck of cards for 10 games or whatever is going to be cheaper than buying 10 decks of cards for 10 games. The other obvious thing is shelf space. If you've got um, 10 boxes, that's obviously going to take up more space than the one box. And by the same token, it's the ecological impact. Because if you think about it, um, in some ways, in this day and age where everything were making everything war mass producing is having an impact on the world and i know that yeah board games are good in that they aren't generally thrown away but i do see so many games that do start to become almost disposable i mean i've got a box next door full of about 30 games that i bought for like literally two quid each just because i was like yeah these are all massively discounted and I'll get joy just by playing them once and then I'll either pass them on or give them to the charity shop or whatever. But when you are doing that, I mean, even if it is just cardboard, there is a detrimental effect on the world in its creation, in the pollution and waste that went into that manufacturing, in the transit, in everything to do with that game. So if you are just having one set of cards or one box and then you continue to get new novel experiences out of it, then boom, you're doing better for the world. And it's kind of like a little box that give, keeps on giving in some ways. Yeah, I think another thing that consumers gain is, okay, so if you buy a deck of cards, uh, you know, some, some people love to play hearts. Other people love to play spades. Other people love to play, you know, any one of the million different games that can be played with a deck of cards. And so you you can have options. Like, you know, one of my games that, that's come out, if people don't like it, then they don't like it. Like, it's not like, well, you know, I don't like that way, but I like playing it this other way. It's a lot more fun than if I do it this way. Th that's not an option. But when you have a system with well, lots of different opportunities, lots of different games, you, you might have 
someone who says, gosh, I hate this game. Oh, but this one over here, I really love the way this game plays out. So I think that's another cool little angle. That's totally true. I mean, I guess that's more a comparison to one single game rather than a complete library of games. Because, I mean, let's say I bought 20 games, I could have that same versatility, but it is really the price and the shop. Like, I guess it depends what you're comparing it to, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess with, you know, there are certain games that have variants in the back. They say, okay, if you want to play it a little bit differently, here it is. But it's still really basically the same game. But like with your L deck, you know, I might really not like one of the word games, but I might really like one of the other games and say, hey, let's play this one instead. And, think, and so we're, yeah, go ahead. I just realized that you comparing it to a game is a really valuable point because to me, a game system should not really be compared to a single game. To me, a game system, a good game system, is basically like a whole library of games. To me, a good game system is curated in the same way that someone might curate a board game library or something. Yeah, but you're only using the same components or the same box of of cards, right? Yeah, and so I think that's one of the disadvantages that it comes to later, that you see this one box and you're like, okay, this is a game. But it's not a game. It is basically a whole game library. Yeah, that's a really cool way to look at it. Let's let's switch gears. Let's talk about disadvantages. What have you run into as a designer, as a publisher of game systems? So disadvantages, I mean, so one thing I'm going to talk about is that compared to a single game, it is slightly more expensive because paper does cost something. I mean, looking at the L deck, what I'm going to do in the future, and I'm slightly rebranding it, it used to be called Wibble Plus Plus, now I'm just calling it the L deck, and each future deck is going to have the rules for one game. So it might be, okay, this box has the rules to categorical, this box has the rules to couple. And in future, you are going to get a little QR code that sends you online and says, okay, you can check out the rules for all these other games on this online website. But my current edition, the deluxe edition, does ha- it does cost like a few quid more than it would otherwise do if it didn't have like rules for six different games right in the box. And so that is a slight disadvantage because, let's say, Rado, I remember giving this review saying that they would absolutely keep it just for Couple, but they didn't care that much about the party games. And it's great that they loved Couple and they are going to and they wanted to keep on playing that. But at the same time, if that is actually the only game that they cared about enough to play regularly, do they really need all the other rule sheets? And whilst I am. Um, I'm going to make all the future editions compatible with all the other games. So it's still going to be like one, whichever deck you buy, you get access to every game, same as a traditional deck called playing cards. It's like, if you buy that compared to one game, it will, it can cost a couple of extra bits. I mean, it's a disadvantage that can be minimized. I guess the big disadvantage is that um, the marketing, the problem, like you've got to advertise so many games. Do people want so many games? It's really about having some good games. And so if you are selling something saying this costs more than a single game, then you've got to demo more than one game for people to understand it. And on the back of the box, there's a lack of clarity because on the deluxe edition that I've got where there are six games, it's like each game only has like two lines for it. Whereas if you compare it to In a Bind or Yogi, then those ones clearly state what's inside. And if you like look at King Domino or, again, Yogi, it kind of says, step one, do this. Step two, do this. Step three, do this. And it teaches you how to play the entire game. You can use the whole back of the box, can use the graphic design, the illustrations, and you can really tell people about what they're getting inside and make it easier. And there's just one set of rules, and it's easier to get into. And it comes into accessibility where... Some people, I've seen them open the deck and they've got all these rules and it's like, oh, what do I start with? That's too much to think about. Some people see the numbers where they don't need to use numbers for that additional game. And normally I just say, okay, the numbers aren't for this additional game. This is what they mean. It's about the frequency of the lower letter. But um, yeah, this is just for other games. You don't need to know it for this game. And they're like, okay, fair enough. But that is something for them to learn. That is a slight extra step, potentially. And then finally, it's the lack of variation in theme, which is what you were getting into, I think, before we started recording, where you're talking about how 
these games are a bit more like abstract by their typical nature and generic. I think that's, yeah, perfect point. Yeah, for sure. I think going back to a point you just made a second ago, clarity has got to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge is, mm. is when somebody picks up the box, they pick up the game, they go, well, what is this exactly? Because it's it's 10 things, it's 100 things. Well, yeah, but what what is it? And it's, it can be very difficult to explain what it is. You know, I think the, the 52 card uh, deck has such an advantage because it has been around forever and people have grown up with it. And so you didn't have to pick up a deck of cards when you were 30 sure. and think, or, you know, well, what is this? Because, you know, you grew up playing War and Spades and Hearts and all these different things. Mm. But when they're picking up a game now, it's like, well, well who is, is this for me? It, it, you know, there's 10 games in this box, but will I like any of them? Will I like one? Will I like 10? If I only like one out of out of 10, so there's nine I don't like, is this still worth the money? I think you, you run into some interesting uh, consumer challenges like that. And I, I think another challenge is a lot of times people see these games as just being gimmicks, mm. you know, and I think 504 definitely fell into that. It was just one big gimmick and it was interesting. It was cool, but that didn't necessarily make it a good game. And so I think a lot of people are very wary of these kinds of games because they think it's just a gimmick. It's like a lot of times people think, okay, there's probably one or two really you know decent games in here and a whole bunch of stuff that the designer just kind of threw in the box to make it look good. I think that's kind of a general uh, concept that people have. And so you, as the publisher, you have to kind of overcome that, that uh, stereotype, so to speak. And, and I think that's one big challenge. What are you doing to, to do that, to overcome that stereotype where, where you say, Hey, here's a bunch of really good games. They're all intentional. It's not just, I didn't just throw a bunch of stuff in here because I could, like I, I've actually really worked to make sure all these games are fun. How do you communicate that as a publisher? I mean, I think that one thing you've got to do is focus on a, be aware that you are going to have to make m- most of the games yourself, especially just to start off with, and they have to be good games. Going back to people don't need, I mean, if someone said to me, oh, here's 10 quid to buy, you know, literally 500 games in a box, I'd be thinking, well, maybe I don't want to read 500 rules. Are any of them interesting? Are they all different? Because it goes back to those old video games, you know, the handheld ones, where it literally says something like, 201 and then they were all like rubbish versions of tetris you know the kind of thing i mean oh yeah i've got one of those (laughs) and i only play like one or two games out of the 217 or something like that so i know exactly what you mean yeah it's kind of crazy some of the and i love that you said 217 are always some bizarre number but um the thing is that it's you need to say this is completely different and what so i've made other games i made a game that I'm still working on, a game wherein you bladder Scottish word meaning to talk at length at a fast rate without necessarily making very much sense, using as many words cards as possible as you spout a stream of consciousness, and then the words, the name of the game carries on for like 2,000 more words. Anyway, that's like the longest game name ever. But this game has like um, X words on each card in a special arrangement, and people have played this and said, hey, what about this other game that you could play with these same cards? Would you do that? And it's like, Yeah, I could do that, but not everything has to be a game system. And that's something that I really want to get across, that just making one game, it is a big deal. Making one game is difficult. Making two games, yes, your second game is going to be easier, but it doesn't mean that it's um, like half as difficult it's still like pretty difficult to make your second game and like by the 10th game yeah you're it's going to be substantially easier yeah i've gotten a lot of experience and practice over the past couple of past like few years but um it is a difficult thing to do and if you are constraining yourself by the um components then that's going to mean potentially that some of the games which i guess is another disadvantage is um, some of the games are potentially going to be a little bit um, hamstrung because maybe you'd think, okay, for this particular game, it would be better if instead of having this, instead of having six S's, maybe for this game, it would be better to have seven S's or whatever, as a very minor example. Something as small as that. Or maybe for this other game, it would be better to not have this thing. And so the components themselves have to be generalized and so it does because it is a hard thing to do and so the games are not necessarily going to be full potential but you need to work within that to make games that aren't just okay games that you've 
managed to shoehorn into this game system, you have to work from the game system, work within the unique strengths of the game system and make something that's good for that. And so what I do to, going back to your question, which I've kind of rambled and totally ignored for five minutes, so sorry about that. How do I address the kind of confusion of are these actually decent games? Firstly, I show them off at conventions. Since 2017, I've realized that it's not worth my time to just show off one game. Once I've showed off one game, which I'll say, okay, would you like to see another game? And I will quite commonly show them Gravel because that one literally takes about two minutes, including teaching time. It's a furious, frantic game of matching cards. And nowadays I'll go to convention and I will have a roller banner with the name of the first eight core games. And I will say to people, all of these are good. Which one of, if you would like me to teach you any of these, I will be happy to teach you any of these. And so sometimes people are like, oh, I quite fancy the idea of a storytelling game. And I will teach them the storytelling game so that they can see for themselves, actually the storytelling game is quite good. And then if they're interested in the alphabetical one, I will teach them that. And so part of it is just the same marketing that you do for any other game, getting out there at conventions, getting reviews that more and more I've said to people, please don't feel like you have to review the entire deck. Please feel free to review just one of the games. And people have taken me up on that. Some people just reviewing the solo games. Some people, um, someone started just reviewing categorical, which is going to be the first one that I do with the L deck. And, the point being that all of these games are good enough on their own. And the other thing that I do is the one game per year. Some people said to me ages ago, oh, won't you run out of ideas doing one game a year if you're saying you'll do it forever? And I'm like, no, no, I won't. And I've got this annual competition where I'm like, last year I had like the first prize, which is going to be announced actually in a couple of weeks, is getting like 100 quid's worth of 100 quid cash. And they got like a whole library of all my games. They got um, like space, offered space at UK Games Expo and Essen. Um, basically, I ha- I'm buying the space myself. And it's like, yeah, if you want to come along, here's a table. You can demo your new game on there. And some consultation time, if that's something that they're interested in. And each year I'm hoping to have that. And I'm continuing to come up with ideas. Frankly, the one game per year is a very serious bottleneck intentionally so that I know it's going to be a game worth making, a game worth playing. And I can focus each time on saying, okay, what is the best game to maximize the um, variability of these games, to ensure there's a high enough quality consistently, and also to make sure that they're all reasonably accessible because I don't want the core games to be, hey, go in straight away and you've got a whole like five pages of rules to read. I want them all to be fairly simple, like accessible point entry points. Yeah, very cool. All right. So going back to what we were talking about before we started recording, a lot of times these games are abstract, just kind of by their very nature. Mm. And so what's your advice for creating them so that they have the flexibility? I think that's one of the main main things. You, You want to make sure the cards, the components have the flexibility to do lots of different things. And so that kind of leads to them being more abstract in nature. So what's your advice to somebody who wants to maybe work on one of these? as far as making you know the cards multi-use and just uh, capable of being different things at different times? Um, I don't think that you can really overcome the lack of thematic you know, nature of the game system at all. I mean, sure, if all of the games are about sub-aqua diving and all of your components in the game system are about sub-aqua diving, then brilliant. And I know that um, Jordan Draper, I think, they're called did some stuff with the tokyo series and there's like little um laundromats in one of them and so all the games kind of become about laundromats and clothes which is really cool and um but all of the games are going to have either the same theme or no theme and in a way no theme is going to last longer because having 20 games that are kind of about laundromats and clothes is maybe going to get tiring after a while whereas if you've got no theme then yes it's only appeals to people who enjoy abstract games but you can 
you know, just still have a variety of games out there. And I would say that, firstly, have multiple things that you can sort of play off. And this is easier kind than you might imagine, because even if you look at a playing card, it's not just rank and suit. You've got like, okay, whether it's flipped up, flipped down, rotation, um, whether it's black or red. And with the L deck, okay, you've got the two letters. And even within the two letters, that's enough that if you think about it, okay, first idea for a game with the L deck, it's going to be a word game. But then someone else had the idea to put them in alphabetical order and to be drafting them to try and get the densest alphabet you can. And then by virtue of having that number in there and a border, that gives people quite a bit to play off. And you could say that that's arguably kind of, well, four elements, is that too much? I mean, I like to think it's not because, you know, it's still only decoration and so it's not too much distraction. But then it means that you can get something where someone made a a game that only uses the borders and the numbers. Um, It was Mark Stockton Pitts. They entered the competition in 2018, I want to say, and made a game called Economic Hell. And it's about kind of putting down cards and then either use the number to increase the value of the market in the middle or you keep it in your own hand and you raise your share. So it's got that really beautiful decision point of do I increase this company's value knowing that I'm giving up the card to do so or do I give up this share or do I keep the share using the other card to build up the value of another company because the companies are all based on their border. And so I'd say, yes, have multiple features on the cards if you using cards um, have, but kind of think about what you're using. And if same with a game, if you are making a game for DL deck or if you're making a game for a game system that you've made yourself, once you've explored the obvious stuff, there's probably lots of not obvious stuff that you've still got to go through. Gotcha. All right. So you mentioned a little bit about community engagement and different ways to kind of get people either to submit new game ideas for contests and things along those lines. But I feel like with with a game system, you really need to build a Mm. pretty good core of raving fans who love the games that you know the system can can play, and so what what's your advice to somebody that maybe wants to make one of these, wants to publish one of these systems? As far as community engagement, what are some things that you're looking to do in the future to kind of help people become fans of the series and, and really just get excited about every August when that new game comes out? Well, firstly, you've got to forge the path. I mean, people all have ideas for their own stuff, and if someone's making a game for your game system, that is an incredible honor. And I am massively honored that like i think i've had um 50 about four more than 40 definitely um community entries kind of going through the google form and giving me games and not just half-hearted ideas these are like fully properly worked out games which is really amazing and but then to start it off you do have to forge the path yourself because people have ideas People want to work on their own things. So why should they work for your stuff? First, you have to make some games worth playing. So you can say, hey, this is something I'm making this commitment. And it's not just going to be, oh, you make something for here and thank you very much. It's like part of a thriving, continuing community. And when it gets to the community, I do run competitions. And so I mentioned every year there is a competition that ends up so on the 1st of August, but um, then actually the one that ended on 2018, um, so that game, after a year of additional development and blind testing and whatnot, that became the core entry game for 2019. And because a year is a good amount of time to do that, um, this year's game isn't going to be one of the contest entries, but by having that contest, by saying to people, hey, please join this contest. Here are some rewards. I'm giving you financial incentive. I'm going to, yeah, this is a really serious thing. People do get, enjoy that. And more than that, I was really um, interested. When I put out a poll, like about, I think, two years ago, I said to people, hey, what would you most like from a competition? The number one thing that most people want is feedback. Now, Chris um, Anderson, I want to say, from the 
board game workshop is doing a brilliant thing with their contest entry. You know that one? Uh, yeah, that's the one where you get like set up with a coach and whatnot at one one point along the way, right? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, Chris Anderson's done just so many amazing things. And then there's like free stages and then really encouraging anyone can be a judge. And then you judge as many as you can and anyone can enter and the financial kind of cost is really low and brilliant. It's kind of really all about the feedback because that is what people want. And this year they're actually saying, okay, you know what? There's no financial incentive anymore. It's just the feedback. And the better you do, the more feedback you get. Because first stage you get this wee video. Now, I'm not doing that. I'm just like, okay, here, send the rules and I will play test everything I can. I think there's like one game that's been submitted that I've not played. And that was because the rules, I just could not understand them at all. They were unfortunately badly written enough that I had to, like, I'm not going to be able to play it until the designer kind of comes back and says, okay, this is what you need to do and everything. But I play every single game that's submitted because then I'm able to give the feedback. And this year I got David Brain on board and Tom Cauldron, the previous winner, to play them all and give a lot of feedback. And I think that, um, yeah, I'm not saying, oh, feedback is as good as money. Obviously, the best thing, it's nice to say, hey, your thing is really important. And if someone's game is good enough to become a solid core game and become their own deck, I'm going to offer them, I've decided you know, a publishing deal which is on par with what I personally would agree to. Because if I wouldn't agree with to it, why should anyone else? So I think, like, my personal standards are a good bar to say, okay, I should be treating God. It's the, the golden rule, you know? And um, so it's also someone recently got a deck from me, like, about a month or so ago and said, hey, I've got these two ideas. I don't know if you are interested in trying them. And I'm like... Well, you know, officially, I only do the feedback in August, September. But if at if we're at the same board game club together and you want to show me, then I'll be very happy to play a wee bit around with you and give you some quick advice. And I think this was a first time designers are just new to making board games. And so having that kind of initial advice saying, hey, here are some pointers and really being there. It's the same as any community, just being there and showing people that they matter valuing people absolutely well bez this has been great you know what are your what are some closing thoughts you know let's say somebody's listening to this they had an idea for a game system they're they're trying to figure out how to do it what would be your kind of closing advice to help them along okay well going back to the ultimate tips firstly remember that success is not likely um just going back to those board game geek numbers there are one hundred and fourteen thousand games on Board Game Geek, and only 16.3 of them even are ranked. Whereas of the game systems, which there's 232, only 13 13% are ranked. And so I'm not saying that all the ranked games are good, but if they're not even ranked, they're certainly not probably not doing anything. And so it's a difficult thing to do. Making multiple games is more work. Make sure you have at least one great game. You're not going to... People don't just buy game systems because they're cheaper people have that extra 10 pounds to spare they don't want to just buy games because they're cheap they want to buy games because they're good um simplify it if you can it's the same as any game whereas in any game you're simplifying the rules simplifying the components it's the same in the game system i mean look at tarot cards which is like 14 times 4 plus 22 which is a weird number it's like four suits of 14 plus 22 other ones whereas the typical one it's 13 times four it's just so much simpler it's accessible for games and designers and remember that you can change things as things go along i mean a good game a good game system is never finished i'm still tweaking like the wording on yogi cards like even though it sold hundreds of thousands of copies and between the first edition and the second edition of Wibble Plus Plus, as it was then called, or like the L deck, as I'm going to call it, um, you know, I slightly shifted around the patterns on some of the things. When you're iterating, when you're playtesting, same as anything, as you always say, playtest, playtest, playtest. But it's a kind of back and forth thing. Let the games inform the components, let the components inform the games. And then during that 
initial design, there is a mutability. It's almost like you're making a CCG or something where once you're done, once you're five years in, you can't really change it massively. But at the start, you might realize things and then go back and change the components. And yeah, it's just go and do it. And remember, curation is everything. Make that community. But whatever you want to do is cool. Don't feel like you have to do a particular thing. It's like, give it a go if you want. Awesome. Well, hey, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about Categorical. Yeah, so Categorical is actually made by Tom Cauldron, who's the designer and submitted it for the um, 2018 Wibble Plus Plus Design Competition, now going to be called the L Design Competition. And Categorical is basically a trivial tug-of-war. You flip over a card and you shout out a word starting with one of the two letters that matches the category you chose. So you might say, okay, food and drink is the category. And so for this entire game, you're going to be shouting out things that are food or drink and start with one of those two letters. You keep going. As the game goes on, it gets harder and harder to think of things. Each time you win, you bring the card closer to your side. It's fast. It's furious. It's for two people or two teams. You can play two against two or three against three or whatever, or you can play on the even teams. You know how teams work. And it's fast, it's furious. And because it's fast and furious, I'm redesigning the cards. I'm going to have it be graffiti-inspired typography. It's going to be really high-energy look, and it's going to be good. And still, you will be able to play all the other games for the L deck with it. Very, very cool. Well, Bez, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for all the advice on gaming systems and uh, good luck with, you know, as you continue to come up with more and good luck with uh, your Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. It's been brilliant. And thank you for making the show, doing a great job. Keep it up and stay funky, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?